is uh, we had all the kids over yesterday uh, for that back-to-school get-together, and we played croquet. I taught them how to play, and uh, I think we all had a lot of fun, and I uh, was glad for all those who got to come. But with that said, and you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm dead serious about this, okay? I'm serious. You can ask Abby. I'm serious. We had about 20 people yesterday, but I didn't know how many we were going to have, and I prepared an abundance of hot dogs. Feel free to come by tonight and eat a hot dog or two or three. I'm serious. If you don't have any dinner plans, if you don't have to get up early to go to work, come back to the house, hang out, have a hot dog. I have dozens of them already cooked, some not cooked. Um, Hang out for a while, eat with us. If you don't like me that much, but you'd still like a free hot dog, I'll wrap one up for you to go. that's fine, but otherwise I'm afraid we're going to be like the Israelites when they ask for quail, and I'm going to have hot dogs running out my nostrils after a few days. So in all sincerity, uh, I don't care if there's two of you, if you all come, I've got enough. Um, so do feel free to do that this evening. When Jesus began to preach his message, we all know this, it was concise. Matthew records it this way, chapter 4, verse 7, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we fast forward a few years to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, when he preached to that audience that God has made this same Jesus, both Lord and Christ, whom you've crucified, they were cut to the heart and they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? What's the very first word Peter said to them? Repent. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter said, repent, and let every one of you be baptized. Before they could be baptized, they must repent. Repent is our word this evening, and it's one of those words that we really don't use outside of a church context. So it's one of those words that we kind of know what it means. We got a pretty good idea, but uh, maybe we, we aren't precise about it. We, we know what it's associated with, but we can't nail it down exactly. So what does it mean to repent? The word translated repent, or the noun form, repentance in the New Testament comes from the Greek metanoieo. That's the verb. It's metanoia is the noun form. And that comes, metanoieo is formed of two Greek words. That's a compound verb. Uh, the verb for to perceive And then that prefix, meta, which means afterwards. So in other words, it means literally to think about something differently afterwards or to reconsider. It's almost always used in the New Testament in relationship to someone's consideration or reconsideration about their own personal sin. So, in other words, we're talking here about a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will, a change of direction regarding sin. That fundamental idea of this word is of turning or returning to the obedience that's due to God. And to define it comprehensively, one sentence, the way I've always found it most helpful to define repentance. Repentance is the change of mind or heart produced by godly grief that leads to reformation of life. So we have some important concepts associated with the idea of repenting there. Let's unpack that just a little bit 
more. The change of mind or heart produced by godly grief that leads to reformation of life. So, first of all, godly grief or godly sorrow produces repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse number 8. He says, even if I made you grieve with, grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, Paul's not talking here about the repentance that leads to conversion, which is what we're primarily talking about tonight, but the same principles apply, and he distinguishes here between godly grief or godly sorrow and worldly grief. Worldly grief is fear of punishment, fear of being found out, fear that you're going to lose your reputation. So you're sorry about your sin. You know, it's like the thief who's not sorry that he stole, but he's very sorry that he got caught. That's worldly grief. Godly grief, on the other hand, is respect for God and the fact that regardless of consequences, we violated his law. One of those leads to life, that godly grief, repentance that leads to life. Worldly grief leads to death, Paul says. So that conviction of sin brings a change in understanding. That's what we see on the day of Pentecost, right? When they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. That's godly grief. And they asked, what shall we do? Peter said to repent. So this is important. Repentance isn't feeling bad that you've sinned. Repentance isn't the conviction of sin, but it's the resolve to do something about it. That godly grief is related to repentance, but it's not repentance itself. Let's fast forward to the last part of that definition. Just like godly grief produces repentance, so too repentance produces reformation of life uh, to the point that that association is so strong, sometimes that Greek word for repent is actually translated reform in some versions, depending on the context. But if we want to get really technical, uh, this is the change of life that's a result of repentance. So think about what John the Baptist says, Matthew chapter 3, verse number 8, for instance. He tells his audience to bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's what we're talking about, that fruit born of repentance is a changed life, and you haven't experienced genuine repentance unless a changed life is the result. That's the, the proof in the pudding. The proof of repentance is that changed life. So on the one hand, we have this feeling of godly grief, this conviction of sin, and on the other hand, we have this reformation of life. What comes in between that change of mind, that change of heart, that change of will, that, strictly speaking, is what we call repentance. It's the resolve to quit doing evil and to start doing right. And as I said, you can call that a change of heart, change of mind, but I, I think change of will really gets to the idea uh, better than any other term. 
So if we talk about repentance comprehensively, it can encompass all three of these things, right? The godly grief, the change of will, and then the reformation of life. But if you really want to get to the heart of it, repentance is that, that change that's produced by the grief and results in that reformation. It's critical that we understand that then, that repentance means this turning, this returning to God, this change of direction, this change of will. We have to understand that in order to make application in our own lives. That's what we want to talk about now. If you're following along in your one-word book, this unit is all about the response that we make to the gospel. Last week we had faith, tonight we have repent, next week is confess, and the following week is baptism. That should sound pretty familiar to all of us. Faith, repentance, confession, baptism. But why is it necessary to repent? Because the Bible says so? Well, sure, partly. But if that's the only reason that we can give for why repentance is necessary, then I think we really don't understand repentance properly. And we really don't understand the response that someone makes to the gospel. And so I'm about to do something really brave or stupid here. Uh, Go back, uh, Pat. I want to go back to that. Yeah, that. Keep that up there for a while. We're all familiar with that right? I'm about to attack a sacred cow here uh, with this chart. We're all familiar with this illustration, or sometimes we'll see it like a staircase that's sideways, and someone is ascending up this staircase here, and, and salvation is up there at the top. And we've all heard invitations that are extended at the end of the sermon like this. You need to hear, and then you need to believe. What does he have up there? Believe, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You need to repent, Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You must must confess, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, whoever confesses me before my Father, or whoever confesses me, rather, I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. And then you need to be baptized, 1 Peter 3, 21, the like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. We've all heard invitations, rapid fire like that, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, the scriptures cited. I don't like that. I don't like that illustration. I don't like extending the invitation in that way. In fact, you haven't ever heard me do it like that. And I want to be really clear here at this point. It's not because I think that that's unbiblical. There is nothing that is unscriptural about that. Nor do I think that any of those items can be omitted. I want to be clear about that too. Now, even if you've never heard me state things exactly that way, you should know well enough by now that I fully agree with everything that's there in that illustration. My problem with it is it has a propensity to muddle our thinking about how we approach God at certain points. And let me explain what I mean by that. And to understand what I mean by that, we really need to to know where this came from. Sometimes you may wonder why I talk about our necessity to know history, this is one of those cases where it's really helpful for us, I think. So go back to the early 19th century, the early days of the American Restoration Movement. Most of the leaders in the Restoration Movement, Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, Walter Scott, a fellow we're going to talk about in a moment, and others, 
almost all of them came out of a strongly Calvinistic background. The Calvinism of that day, the way it was understood on the frontier, was so strong that people believed that you had no hope of being saved unless you were part of the elect. That is, unless you were predestined by God to be saved, even if you wanted to be saved, you couldn't be. And so the belief was it was completely futile to attempt in any way yourself to respond to the gospel. Now you can imagine then that for a lot of people this created an emotional crisis because they might have believed in Jesus and they might have wanted to serve God, but they didn't know if they were part of the elect or not. And the only way that you could know you were saved is if you had some sort of conversion experience. And there are biographies from the men of this time period talking literally about people uh, weeping and being in tears because they were so distraught about this, sometimes literally waiting for years to have this proof that they'd been saved and worried about the fact that they hadn't been. Well, it's against this background, looking for this proof of salvation, that Alexander Campbell provided a, a solution in his debate with the Presbyterian W.L. McCullough in 1823. And that was the first time that Campbell publicly pronounced that in baptism you receive forgiveness of sins. And of course he's right. That's exactly what scripture teaches. But if you're someone who is looking for this assurance of salvation, think about it from the standpoint of those poor hopeless, helpless people I'm talking about here. This is a, a watershed moment because now, well, here's what the Bible really teaches and here's what we've been looking for. Here's this proof, this assurance. And so that took root and it brought comfort to a great many people. Just to give you one example, John Rogers, who was a preacher in Kentucky, not part of Campbell's movement at that point, but of Stone's, he put it this way. He said the early Christians were immersed and were pardoned and they knew it and rejoiced in it and never spoke in the language of doubt or fear upon the subject. That's why this teaching of baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the correct biblical teaching, uh, took such a firm hold in the minds of so many. Now that teaching of the connection between baptism and forgiveness of sins was spread widely by a fellow named Walter Scott. Scott was hired as an evangelist in what was known as the Western Reserve uh, by the association that Campbell was affiliated with in 1827. And Campbell had taken to calling this the ancient gospel. Well, Scott took that ancient gospel to its conclusion. The gospel restored, he called it. That was the theme of his preaching. And he summarized that restored gospel in six points. Man must do three things to be saved. Believe, repent, and be immersed. In response, God would grant that penitent, immersed believer three things. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. Now to make that easier to teach, he collapsed those last two, the gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life, down into one point, the gift of the Spirit. And he taught it in what was called his five-finger exercise. He would go to a town and children would be coming home from school and he'd stop them and he'd teach them about that, that you needed to believe, to repent, to be baptized and then God would give you forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit and he'd tell them to make a fist 
and then to go home and show their parents what was on their fingers. And if they wanted to know more, that the man who taught them that would be preaching there in town tonight. That five-finger exercise is the root of these steps here. Now, all of that is biblical. And that was enormously effective. I don't want to diminish that either. That first year Stone was teaching out in the Western Reserve, he baptized 1,000 people. And in fact, he averaged baptizing 1,000 people every year for the rest of his life, over 30 years of preaching. But here's what I want us to remember. That is an illustration. That's a shortcut, a shorthand method of trying to teach what the Bible says. It's not actually what Scripture says. It's certainly not the gospel itself. And I think that this way of teaching it has a tendency at times to create some problems for us. For one thing, we want to talk about problems this creates, and now you can go on to the next slide. For one thing, this can create the false impression that God has given us a checklist. You'll notice when we think of our five steps, that differs from the ones that Scott gave. Scott had man doing three things and then God acting in response. Ours is entirely man-centered. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. This is all what we do. And that effort was underway within a couple of decades of Scott actually verbalizing this for the first time. So he focused on our action and God's action in response. But now when we talk about this, this is all about what I do. We effectively teach, or at least create the impression, that we save ourselves by climbing the staircase. We save ourselves by working the plan. How do we know we're saved? Well, because I went through all the steps. I heard, I believed, I repented, I confessed, I was baptized, so I know that I'm saved. And often, how often have you heard that given in an invitation completely divorced from any teaching about Jesus? We haven't talked about what God did in Christ. We just get to the end of the sermon and we have to wrap it up some way. And so we say, you need to hear. Uh, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And then we go into belief. Well, wait a minute. What do I need to hear? I mean, for one thing, to tell someone they need to hear straight out of the Department of Redundancy Department. They're actually hearing you now. You don't need to tell them they need to hear. You just need to tell them what you're going to tell them. But we have to come up with that here to make our five fingers fit, right? To add something in there when it's all about what we do. But at any rate, what you need to hear is the gospel. But we leave the impression sometimes that, well, do I need to hear that I need to hear? Do I need to hear that I need to be baptized? No, what you need to hear is the gospel. And the gospel, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again for our sins. The gospel is Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This faith, repentance, confession, baptism, properly speaking, that's the response that we make to the gospel. And lest you think that I'm just pulling this out of thin air or that I'm up on some, uh, you know, way off my rocker here with this. This is a problem that the church has been dealing with for some time. G.C. Brewer was a great preacher, one of my favorite preachers of the 20th century. He was the editor of the Gospel Advocate, and this is what he wrote in Gospel Advocate in 1932. 
Some have been wont to show that there is a human side and a divine side to salvation. And in doing so, they have made the human coordinate with the divine. Worse, in the minds of some, the divine has been completely ruled out and salvation made a matter of human achievement except that the plan was divinely given. The gospel was made a system of divine laws for human beings to obey and thus save themselves. Sends grace, sends mercy, sends everything spiritual and divine except that the plan was in mercy given. God didn't give us a checklist to follow. He gave us a savior. God didn't give us a staircase to ascend. He himself descended to lift us up out of sin and death. So I worry that our shortcut illustration has the unintentional effect at times of perverting the gospel. Now that's big picture. But what does that have to do with repentance specifically, since that's what we're talking about tonight? When we view these things as just steps we need to follow, a plan we need to work, then we might be tempted to view these things as arbitrary. Why do I need to believe? Well, because God said it. (laughs) Why do I need to repent? Well, because the Bible told me to. Repentance isn't arbitrary. Repentance is the natural response that you have to make to the gospel. In Christ, God has freed us from the bondage of sin. And that's not just forgiveness of past sins. It's freedom from the love and the practice of sin. Paul talks about this idea at length in Romans chapter 6. Just to start reading in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. God washes away our sins because of his mercy, but then he requires us to follow him. We have to put to death the sin in us and the love of sin in us. That's what repentance is. We change our mind, we change our will, we change our hearts in regard to sin. We're made a a new creation in Christ. At our baptism, we're raised up to walk in newness of life in Christ. But how can we walk in a new life if there's no repentance, if we haven't turned from sin and turned to God? See, the Christian life is to be a natural one. It's not forced. God wants us to choose to follow him. But that means we have to choose to leave off sin and to turn and to go after him. So what that means is that repentance is a natural condition. It's not arbitrary just the way you have to respond to what God's done in Christ. Furthermore, when we look at these things in terms of steps, I need to believe, I need to repent, I need to, be confess, I need to confess, etc. The illustration separates belief and repentance out as discrete steps, two different things. We even had debates about this many decades ago with the Baptist. I'm not sure if any of you know this or remember this or not. 
But what was at stake was, does faith precede repentance or does repentance come before faith? Because you see, the Baptist argued because you're saved by faith alone, but you've got to repent, so repentance must come from God as a gift before you have faith. On the other hand, the argument that many of us made was that, well, who's going to repent, turn to God, if they don't believe? Obviously, you have to believe before you repent. And so this is a live issue debated by many. Well, if by faith we mean only mental assent, yes, I believe in the facts of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, well, then, yeah, sure, faith comes before repentance. But remember what we said last week when we talked about faith? That mental assent is not saving faith. That's not what the Bible means, that alone, when it talks about faith. The heart of faith is trust. Placing our trust in God, placing our trust in Christ as our Savior. And to place that trust in him, we have to turn to him, don't we? That is, we have to repent. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. So you see, I think, I think we're amiss when we think about these things sequentially. I believe and then I repent. Or even if you thought of it the other way around, I repent and then I believe. This is comprehensive for how you totally, completely respond to the gospel. As we said last week, faith is the natural way to receive a gift. That's what salvation is. That's what the gospel is. God is giving you something. That's what grace means, unmerited favor, the free gift God is giving you in Christ. You have to receive that gift. The only way you can receive any gift is in faith. I have to trust that person who's offering me that gift and reach out to them and take it. Well, then we see how repentance goes hand in hand with that. To take what God's offering me, I put my trust in him and I turn to him. I take him at his word. See, faith and repentance aren't two separate things. They're just two sides of the same coin. This is about an attitude, a spirit, a response to what God's done in Christ. And we're just sort of responding describing it from different vantage points. You might think of it in terms of repentance is sort of from God's point of view. That is, we were going one way, now we're going to him. Faith is from our point of view. I'm placing my trust in God. No penitent person lacks faith, and no trusting person is impenitent. But finally, For those of us who are Christians, that is, those of us who've already responded to the gospel, and that is the way that we respond, to be clear one more time, it is essential that we respond in faith and in repentance and in baptism. But the one last quibble I have with thinking of these as as steps that we climb, these aren't one-time acts. When you climb a staircase... You only stand on each step once, don't you? I mean, unless you're really bad at climbing steps (laughs) or climbing an escalator, I suppose. (laughs) But when you climb a staircase, you stand on each step once and then you move on to the next one. And so I believed and now I go on, I repented. Okay, I did that. Now I go on and I confess. But when you think about hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, the only one of those that it is a one-time, once-for-all act is baptism. Baptism is once-for-all. But the rest of those continue. Now, we realize that with faith or belief, I'm sure. I mean, we all realize that you can't just believe and then you give it up. But do you think about that with repentance? Repentance isn't a one-time only thing. We must live penitent lives. We must die 
to sin in order to be buried in baptism, back to Romans 6 that we looked at earlier. But that doesn't conclude our repentance. We have to live lives characterized by repentance. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, we all know this passage. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, in reality, obeying the gospel means believing, placing your trust in the Lord, repenting and confessing on a daily basis. You don't get to the top and then you're done. This is about the way that you live your life, trusting in God, continuing to turn to him to forgiveness. We live lives characterized by penitent faith, day by day, trusting in God and endeavoring to serve him as best we can. The question for us tonight is how are we doing with that? Because we have that opportunity for repentance and that command to repent, as John says, if there's any sin in our lives, the Lord's invitation is extended now. If there's anything that you need to repent of in a public way, you have that opportunity, and we invite you to come and make your need known now while we stand and while we sing. The Savior calls, I will answer.